if you would, imagine with me for a moment. Imagine that you have a perfect boss at work. Just perfect. They do everything right all the time. They give you good instructions, tell you exactly what's expected of you every day. Or for you children or folks that aren't working right now, imagine that you had a perfect teacher, whether that's your mom or somebody else. Uh, imagine that you had a perfect teacher giving you good, clear instructions every day. So at the beginning of your shift, at the beginning of your school day, you go in, you get these perfect instructions on this is my expectation of you today, and this is how you are to do it. And then they say, go, go do, right? Go do this. At the end of each day, they come back and say, here's all the ways that you failed. Here's all the ways that you didn't do what was expected of you. And these things that you thought you were doing right, here's actually how you did them wrong. Can you imagine living like that? That would be crushing, wouldn't it? If your boss did that to you every day, I would imagine uh, you'd be looking for new employment as soon as possible, right? Uh, as a teacher, I mean, if your teacher was this way, do you really think that you would learn and grow and thrive? Or would it be crushing? Now imagine, instead of a boss or a teacher, this is actually your spouse or your parent for you children. What if your spouse was perfect? Now some of us have imagined we'd like to have a perfect spouse, right? We have a kind of an idea of what that would be in our head. But let me offer, a offer this uh, thought. Uh, I don't think it would be as good as we think it would be. Right? Imagine having a spouse who each day would say, uh, he, here's what is good and right for today. Here's what we should be doing. Go, do, right? Do this. Participate. Or to have a parent who would say to you children, here's my expectation of you today. Go, do this, right? Here's how to do it. And then at the end of each day, your spouse comes back or your parent comes back to you and says, all right, here's where we came up short today. Well, specifically, here's where you came up short today because I'm perfect, right? Could you imagine living like that? So, let's review where we've been in Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 7 today. That is found on page 887 in that Black Pew Bible in front of you. If you would like to turn there and follow along, I'll be reading it here in a minute. If you don't have a Bible of your own, there are some free ones back there on the back table. We would love to give that to you as our gift uh, to you today. So please take one of those and read it. And we're going to be talking today a little bit about how to do that well, hopefully, Lord willing. So to review, though, Paul has been laying out this long argument that spanned multiple chapters, right? And so as we get to Romans 7 today, and often what happens, especially with Romans 7, is when we get there, we read it like it's just all by itself. Like it just started and ended right there in Romans 7. And we sometimes neglect to piece it together the way that Paul has with the previous chapters, spanning all the way back, right, to the beginning of the book and reaching ahead. And hopefully we'll see that a little bit today. But what Paul has been arguing throughout is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Romans 3, we see that. He laid out his thesis statement in Romans 1, this very concise uh, this very concise summary of the gospel, and this, this hopefully will be encouraging to think about this as well. Um, 17 and 8, no, 16 and 17, excuse me, 
is Paul's thesis statement for Romans, for the book of Romans. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So that is a summary of what Paul is now going to go on in chapter after chapter, verse after verse, explain how that is, how it is that that statement is true. And so we need to be paying attention to these long explanations. And it should be an encouragement to you that we can't just get up and say, hey, here's the gospel in these two or three short sentences and not explain it. Right? Paul goes on to explain the gospel in depth. And chapter 7 plays an important role in that. Last time, if you remember, if you were here, the Sunday after Easter, it's been a while, uh, Romans 6, we covered that we have died to sin, that in Christ we've been so united to him in his death and resurrection that we are now dead to sin, right? That is an important aspect of Romans 6, and that was answering the question from Romans 5 of saying, well, if grace is, is abounding, then why shouldn't we just go on sinning so that grace will abound even more? And, and Paul says, no, you're dead to sin. Right through Christ. And so now we're going to get to Romans 7, which is actually going to, to illustrate Paul's premise. He's going, to, he's going to lay out 1 through 6, his argument for the chapter, and then he's going to flesh it out, so to speak, in the rest of the chapter. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. So Romans 6 was, we, we concluded it last time with, present yourself to God and your members for righteousness' sake. So keep that in your mind, uh, if, you, if you will. So chapter 6, we are set free from sin. Now chapter 7, Paul's going to help us understand how, and that is that we've been set free from the law. So if you will, if you're there in your Bible, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Romans 7. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law? that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by the law to her, to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is set free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. 
For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do not... Sorry. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then... I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to God. You may be seated. I'm going to give you three and a half points today. Uh, The half point is more just kind of a, I want to cover some of the views of chapter 7 just to help us wrap our minds around that a little bit, especially the uh, verses 7 through 25. But point one is don't stay married to the wrong guy. Don't stay married to the wrong guy. That's point one. Point two will be, uh, that's that half point, that uh, what the views are of 7 through 25. How do we understand that? Point three will be, uh, from verses 7 through 13, the exceeding sinfulness of sin. That will be point three. Point four is going to be the fight for righteousness. The law is good. The problem is us. Right? So that's where we're going today. If you want to uh, follow along, I'll try to stick to that as best I can. So let's look at verses one through six. Don't stay married to the wrong guy. Having shown in chapter 6 that we have died to sin, Paul is showing how it is possible, legally speaking, uh, to no longer be under the law but under grace, as chapter 6 has laid out that we are under grace. And so he also makes clear there, as I said in the introduction, that, that being under grace does not lead to sinning freely without care or concern. Here in chapter 7, he's demonstrating the use of the law and that the law is powerless to keep you from sinning. That's one of the main points of uh, Romans 7 is the law's weakness because of our flesh. And so keep that in mind as well. You were born into being married to the law. You didn't choose it. It chose you. An arranged marriage, if you will. You belong to the law in your flesh. The law shows you perfection, but you can't live up to it. You need out. You need a new husband. And so let me read verses 1 through 6 again and and keep that in mind. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? I'm sorry, that's, verse, that's chapter 6. 1 through 6 of chapter 7. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. 
in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So Paul, again, starting right there in verse 1, you see that it's linked to his previous arguments, right? Or do you not know, brothers? He's linking it to what he's been talking about. And he's been anticipating various arguments or pushbacks against his assertions of what the gospel and its implications lead to, right? And so here, he is addressing specifically those Jewish Christians at the church in Rome that would have struggled with this idea that the law somehow has a weakness or somehow maybe is not the way to God, right? And so he is zeroing in on this understanding of the law and what its use is, what it's for. And he uses this analogy of marriage. And some have criticized him or questioned Paul's use of this analogy because it breaks down, right? How does the, you know, if the husband dies, then, then I'm freed from, if I'm the wife, right, I'm freed from the law of marriage. But in this case, I've died with Christ, so how is it that I can marry Christ then if I'm dead, right? Does that make sense? Like some people question his logic here and like, is he really that good of a, a rhetorician if he's using this kind of analogy? Well, think for a moment what Jesus says in John 3. You must be born again, right? That I believe Paul firmly here has in mind that this metaphor works just fine. Because when you died, to Christ, died in Christ, you've also been born again in Christ. So you live now, right? And you are alive to belong to another in marriage, in this covenant relationship. That's what that marriage is, is representing there, right? And so... This, you being born again, I don't know if you're aware of this, probably, but in case you're not, you being born again is not so that you can just go live your life however you want to now without being worried about fear of death and punishment from sin, right? That's not what being born again is for. You being born again is so that you can be joined to Christ in this covenant relationship. In other words, my point falls a little bit short in the way I've summed it up. Don't be married to the wrong guy. You can't divorce the law. You must die. And so in Christ, you have, so that you can belong to another. You can't divorce the law and just go do your own thing. You are under the law. You belong to the law until you die. And in Christ, praise God, we have. We have died to that, so that we can belong to him. Not so that we can go off and do our own thing and be a single individual the rest of our lives and do whatever we want. But it's so that we can belong to the one who has been raised from the dead. He is also showing in this section, again, 1 through 6 is laying out what he's going to illustrate in very vivid language in 7 through 25. But he, he's saying here that, that living by the law does not produce fruit unto life. Do you see that in verse 5? For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. You cannot be justified, Romans 5 and 6. You cannot be sanctified, Romans 7, by the law. Meaning you can't be made to live right and holy, more holy, by just trying to obey the law. Because as we're going to see in a minute, what, the law has done, what sin has done to the law is twisted it in such a way that instead of life it brings death. And so he says right here, living by the law 
does not justify you or sanctify you because it doesn't have the power to make you obey, to make you holy. Consider David. He's a good example of this. He delighted in God's law. Psalm 19, I'm going to read from that in a few moments. Psalm 19, he talks about delighting in the law of God, right? And yet, what does David do? He knows the law full well. He delights in it day and night. He meditates on it, right? And as king, what does he do? He covets his neighbor's wife and then takes her for himself and then murders to cover it up, right? David knew the law. He knew you shall not covet. And yet, in his flesh, he coveted. The law was powerless to cause him to obey. And that is why Paul gets to, in verse 6, that we must serve in the new way of the Spirit. We cannot try to serve God according to the letter of the law because what sin in us does, as he's about to demonstrate, does not allow that to happen. The, the law is powerless to make us obey because of our sin. Let me give you a couple applications from this, this point. I keep saying it, but I'm going to keep saying it. Don't look to the law for justification or sanctification. It's not his point. It's powerless to do either because it's not what it was designed to do. All right? So don't look to the law for your sanctification. Number two, don't expect the law to sanctify anybody else either. Your kids, your coworkers, your employees, you must teach them and help them Along, right? You can't just give them a bunch of rules and expect perfect obedience. Expect that the repeating of the law over and over is going to somehow produce fruit for life. Our sin does not do that. So one of the commentaries I was reading mentioned Augustine in his confessions talked about how as a teenager he was walking past uh, uh, this pear tree that belonged to a neighbor. And what does he, him and his buddy do? They go over and shake the tree and a bunch of pears fall down and they take them and then they, they go feed them to the pigs. Because their pears at home were better. Why did he steal these pears? Because sin tempted him to steal. It wasn't because he needed them. It wasn't even because they were better than what he had. It was just because he was not supposed to. How many of you, when told, don't do that, immediately go, I'm going to do that? We have that in us, don't we? Does that surprise you still sometimes? Like, man, I know that's not good, but I've been told not to, and now I really want to. Just because. That is our sin, our sinful nature, that flesh trying to get up and, and control us again, right? So, we can't just expect the law to sanctify our kids, our coworkers, employees, anybody else in our life. That doesn't mean, though, that we throw the law out. We'll get to that in a few moments. But let's move on to point two now. I'm going to give you a few views just very briefly. If you want to talk about this more, we can. It's very interesting. Uh, but I bring this up not just because it's interesting, but because I think it's useful to think about, specifically uh, as an example in Romans 7. Four views, four predominant views of how to view verses 7 through 25, how to understand who is the I that Paul is talking about. There's been much debate for a very long time about who exactly Paul is talking about here. Is he talking about himself before he became a Christian the whole time? Is he talking about himself in verses uh, 7 through 13 before he became a Christian and 14 through 25 after he became a Christian? Is he talking about Israel? Is he talking about Israel under the law? Right, That's another view. Or another one is, is he actually talking about Adam? 
Is he talking about Adam before the fall, 7 through 13, and then after the fall, everybody who is in Adam? And so there are these four views, plus a lot of disagreement about how, the, how, you know, how exactly that works out. Because in each of those views, you're going to find some things in the text that you're like, I don't know how to make that fit. If, if, if this is the case, then how, how can he say this? For example, if, if we believe that it is um, all, all people who are under the law, who are still in the flesh, who have not been saved, how is it that he can say, I delight in the law, in the law of God with my mind, right? Because in, in Romans 3, he says that we suppress, in Romans 1, he, we suppress the truth, right? That we reject God, we reject his law, we rebel against him. And so how, can, how, how does that work together? You see, you see the, the quandary here, that there are, some, uh, there are some points that it's hard to make this all fit into one, one interpretive grid, one way of understanding this passage. And so one of the things that we are trying to do uh, in adult Sunday school, come to adult Sunday school if you can. We're going through biblical theology. We're talking about tools on how to understand scripture, how to understand what it is these folks are saying to us. Much of the time, the plain reading is, is good and right, and that would be the way they understood it then. But sometimes, some of these passages would have been heard very differently when they were originally spoken or preached or written. And so we need to be careful. We need to be aware that the plain reading sometimes can actually trip us up if we don't do the work to understand what's going on here. So what do we do with this? The application is, be careful how you interpret Scripture, because a lot of times what Romans 7 ends up leading to is us bringing our experience to Romans 7. Well, this is true of me. This is how I feel when this happens. Therefore, this must be what Paul is saying. Is that a way to accurately and faithfully figure out what it is that the text is trying to tell us? Our experience can be helpful, right? If we, if we see something that we see, like right now, many of us are looking around at the culture thinking, Romans 1, definitely true, right? Our experience is confirming what we read in Romans 1 in a lot of ways. But does that mean that we get to use our experience to interpret Romans 1? Or in this case, Romans 7. We have to be careful of that. It can be helpful, but it can't be the only tool that we use when we come to Scripture. And so... One of the things that we encourage and want to encourage again is to not just study the Bible alone. Study the Bible on your own. Read it. Study it. Get commentaries. There's a bunch of free stuff online now that you can study a lot. And you can look at the Greek and the definitions. You don't have to know Greek to look that up. It can be helpful. There are tools that are available that are free. Make use of those. But when we do it alone, we are more susceptible to bringing our own experience to this and not considering outside of that. And so we ask and we encourage to do this together. Let's read and let's study the Word together, not just on Sunday mornings when one of us stands up here to explain what, what we see in the text and, and how to apply it to our lives, but at men's and women's Bible studies, adult Sunday school when you're able, together in small groups if you'd like. Gather together and read God's Word together and ask, what are you seeing here? What is this actually saying? What does history tell us that, that the original hearers would have heard? So, let me give you one quick example. There is a strong argument to be made that what Paul is actually doing here is a rhetorical de device that was common in that day called impersonation. Where without warning, 
without even any introduction that we can see written, Paul, as he was speaking, would have gone from giving instruction to then saying in verse 7, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known what sin is. I would not have known sin. For I would, I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Right? That he, he almost like steps over as he's speaking. He starts to speak in someone else's voice. Being, in this case, Adam. And some of the evidence for that is, who's the only person who was alive apart from the law? Adam and Eve. Who was the only person where the commandment was, you shall not covet. Right? You shall not eat this fruit. What was the commandment that was broken? They wanted the fruit. They wanted to be like God. They were coveting, right? And so that's just a brief sample of that argument. There's a long article uh, written about that. I can give that to you another time. It's uh, written by Ben Witherington. He just sounds smart, doesn't he? Witherington. Um, but he's done a lot of study into this, and, and there's actually been a lot of application uh, of this throughout church history. So this isn't some new idea that some guy just came up with. A lot of the original or early church fathers understood the rhetorical devices and taught according to them. And so we can be aware of those things. We can look for those things. Now, at this point, I'm not saying I land firmly on that one. I'm leaning that direction. But what we can do is keep studying, keep looking, and keep trying to understand because that will impact our understanding of this passage in its fullness. But what I'm going to give you for the rest of the time today is application that whether you think he's talking about Adam or talking about himself... These points will be true. Okay? So that's where we're going with the rest of our time. Point three, then, is the exceeding sinfulness of sin. In 7 through 13, uh, we see that, that Paul is telling this Jewish audience that would have been feeling very uneasy when talking about being released from the law, being set free from the law. How can I do that and not be in rebellion against God? Paul is explaining now the use of the law. That is not bad, you're just using it the wrong way. The law is holy. The commands are holy, righteous, and good. So don't throw out the law. Put it to proper use. Without the law, we don't know what sin is. We don't know the standard. We flounder. We're, we are oblivious even to how we harm ourselves and how we harm those around us when we don't know the law, when we don't understand what the standard is. So in verse... 13, let's look there. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Think about what he's saying there. Think about what he's saying in verse 13. That sin actually uses what is good and holy to produce death in us. To use what, what promises life, right? Moses is commanded, do this and live, right? The, the commandments, if you do this, you will live. And yet sin that is in our flesh twists that command and makes it produce death. Paul argued at the end of chapter 5 that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. He is driving that home here. He wants us to see how truly awful sin is. It is to be taken seriously by the Christian. And that's why we take it seriously here. That is why we have a prayer of confession each week. That's why we confess our sins to one another and have made that a practice even on Sunday evenings where we give opportunity to do that. 
because we want to take our sin seriously because Scripture takes our sin seriously. Some of us, because of our understanding of grace in a limited sometimes way or relying on our experience, don't take sin seriously enough. And this is a correction to that. That sin is so bad that what Christ had to do to die for our sin is so much greater. Right? That grace would abound. That He would destroy the power of sin to be able to twist the law in our hearts. That is a big deal. That is bigger than often we let our minds and our hearts think about very long or wrap around. We don't like to think about these things because it's hard. It convicts us. It makes us feel bad. Some of us, though, stay too long there. We'll come back to that in a minute. But for some of us, we just push it off and quickly try to not to think about it anymore. But Scripture doesn't give us that option. It takes it very seriously, and we need to do so as well. So, let me give you a couple applications from this section. Don't disparage the law. Don't disparage the law. Scripture is true, and this is what it says. Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. This is David speaking, the same David who broke the commandment, you shall not covet, right? The law is good, and we need to treat it as such. It is helpful to us. Number two, though, the law exposes our sin. That is its primary use. It is to expose our sin. And so we repent. What does it mean to repent? It means we turn from that and turn to God. But again, in our flesh, how do we do that? We can't. Because what sin does when we hear the command, rather than being convicted by sin, it tempts us to do it all the more. How do we repent? In the new way of the Spirit. In the new way of the Spirit. That is how we repent. Lord willing, we'll talk more about that next week in Romans 8. It also, the law, shows you the good works that we're to walk in, right? Ephesians 2.10, you were saved by faith, right? Not by works. But for what reason? In order that you might walk in the works that God has prepared beforehand for you to walk in. How do you know what those works are? How do you know where you're supposed to walk? He's told you in His law. These are the things that are good and right. And there are situations where you can figure out, okay, this is the principle of God's law, so this is how I should act in this in this. Situation to know that I'm walking according to His will. Again, by the power of the Spirit. Uh, fourth application from this section is to teach the law. I said earlier, don't rely on the law to sanctify, right? But you still have to teach the standard. You still have to teach the law to your kids, to your co-workers, to your employees, to your students, whatever it may be. It does not do anyone any favors to get rid of the law. Without it, we go on blindly producing the fruit of death. For ourselves and others. And grace does not abound where there is no sin. And there is no sin apart from the law. There's no understanding or awareness of it. And so we do need to teach the law to each other. 
We need to help people understand God's standard. Not so that they will be sanctified, but so that they will know how to repent and how to ask God to help them walk in obedience. So, let's move on then to 14 through 25. The fight for righteousness. The law is good. The problem is us. We need more than the law to be made righteous. The law in and of itself is not enough. There is this universal experience of the struggle with the flesh. While many find great comfort in this passage, right? Assuming that this is Paul's experience after becoming a Christian. This isn't the primary point. Paul is demonstrating now what he said earlier in 1-6. through The law's inability to make anyone righteous. He's also demonstrating the reality of sin dwelling within our hearts, which cripples our flesh from being able to produce any righteousness. In stark language, he's showing that we can do nothing in our flesh, in our own strength. And this is why we must serve according to the Spirit and not the written code in verse 6. So that's really what what 14 through 25 is, is demonstrating there, is this frustration that we feel when we try to serve God in our own strength. That, that sin would twist the commandments and make us tempted to disobey rather than to obey. Nothing good dwells in me, he says in verse 18. This is a very frustrating, and, and, and hopefully you heard it as I read it the first time, that, that there's this building frustration as Paul is, as Paul is speaking here and, and talking about the frustrations of not being able to do what I know is right, but I keep, having, uh, I keep doing what I know to be wrong. Who will deliver me from that. Who can deliver us? We must belong to Christ. We must belong to Christ. He is the one that Paul says delivers us. And so we see here in verse 24 and 25 a link. That this is a a rhetorical device that's not debated that Paul is using, whether the impersonation... Uh, rhetorical devices being used or not some would still debate this one's not really debated that what Paul is doing in verses 24 and 25 is he actually begins to introduce chapter 8 before he finishes his argument from chapter 7 so did you ever notice that it kind of feels like this hard turn there like he gets to the point and he says wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord right it seems like you should just stop there and go straight to 8-1 right there's therefore now no condemnation but he doesn't. He, 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 he recaps what just happened in verse 25. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Right? And so he's linking these two together. Chapter 7 and chapter 8 go together. So I'm glad I get the opportunity to preach them back to back. I hope you are too. But either way, uh, these two go together. We cannot read 7 in isolation. To really understand what Paul is talking about in 7, we have to go on to 8, and we have to keep in mind 5 through 6. So this week, a great application, a great assignment for you this week would be go back and read 1 through 7, and maybe do at least 4 through 7 in one sitting. You can look at it multiple times, but to think about, even going back to the example of Adam, for us, you know, I haven't talked about Adam since Romans 5 which was months and months ago, right? But for Paul's audience, they would have heard about 
Adam about five minutes ago, maybe seven, depending on how slow he's talking, right? And so this link that, that may be there would have made sense, right? For us, it feels very disconnected. It's like, whoa, where'd that come from? But for them, they would have just heard about Adam in Romans 5. So my encouragement to you is read a bigger chunk. Try to stay focused. I know our attention spans today, many of us struggle to focus more than 10 minutes. I, I struggle with that as well. But try. Try to stay focused and read 1 through 7, 5 through 7, all in one sitting. And think about the way that Paul keeps going back and forth. The what shall we say then, right, that introduced this chapter. He uses that six times in the book of Romans. He's linking things. He's making arguments, right? And so when he says that, think, all right, what, what is he saying, right? What, what is he addressing here? What, what argument is he anticipating? Think through those things. The other thing to notice as you read 1 through 7 and really even as you keep going, I can't remember the number. It's, it's a lot. It's dozens and dozens of times, if not into the hundreds, that in the book of Romans, Paul talks about sin. That is why I can say with confidence that the Bible takes sin seriously, right? And so you'll see that when you sit and just, just read. And if you get past 7, you can go ahead and read 8 and get ready for next week. That'd be fine. That'd be fine. Maybe you'll see some connections that I'll miss, and you can tell me about them after next week. That'd be good. All right? So think about that. Consider doing that this week. Uh, reading it in bigger chunks uh, will be really helpful. And uh, yeah, maybe I'll make room to read a couple chapters together next week. Let me give you some applications, though, from 7 through 25 beyond reading this in big chunks to understand it better. Don't despair or give in. Don't despair or give in. As Paul is recounting, whether this is Adam or himself, what Paul is recounting is the frustration that comes from realizing the depth of my sin. That my sin is so deep that it would take what, what is good and holy and twist it and use it to produce death in me. That is messed up. That can lead to despair. That can lead to, to not much hope of change, right? But that is not where Paul ends this. Paul says, who can deliver me? Praise God. Thank, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right? He has done it. And that's what he's going to show next week as well. That the power of sin to take the law and pervert it has been broken. It doesn't have to do that all the time in you anymore if you're a believer. He has broken that power of sin in your life. So now we may use the law rightly. So don't despair. Go to Christ. Go to Christ. Second, I asked you earlier to keep in mind the idea of presenting your members for righteousness sake that we saw in chapter 6. We see again, Paul used that word in verse 23, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, right? But we no longer have to present our members as slaves to sin because that slavery is over, right? We now belong to the one who's been raised from the dead. So we can now present ourselves and our members to God for righteousness sake. So present yourself and your members to God for his service. Don't give up. Romans 7 is not a chapter that should lead to despair. It helps us see the depth of our need. But oh, it takes us then to the glories of God's provision for that need. So imagine with me one more time mentioned at the beginning the perfect spouse the perfect parent 
who would tell you exactly what you needed to do and how to do it. But then they didn't really offer any help, right? Maybe, maybe they called in the middle of the day to check in and see how you were doing and remind you of what you needed to be doing, but that was it, right? But imagine now that you have a spouse or a parent who is perfect. But at the beginning of the day when he says, here's how you are to live today, he doesn't then go off and do his own thing perfectly. He is with you throughout the day because he promises to never leave you or forsake you. And not only does he, does he stay there with you and remind you of what is good and right, he has put himself, his spirit within you to empower you to obey, to help you throughout the day to obey what he has called you to do. Imagine having a spouse or a parent who is that loving and kind to stay with you, to gently help you, to give you power to obey. And then as you fail, as you, as you do let your flesh flare up in you and, and you sin and you, and you mess up, for him to forgive you. For him to say, yeah, I see that. I paid for that. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. At the end of the day, you're not in despair. You have hope. You have hope that life is not going to lead to death. But that your Savior, who is with you, will be with you forever and will help you. That you will be sanctified by the power of the Spirit within you. That the Spirit will use the law to help you grow. Don't, don't go try to be with the old husband again. Don't, don't go back to the law. That's what Paul's getting at in Galatians. Right? Don't be adulterous to Christ. You've been purchased. You are now His. You belong to the one who's been raised from the dead. Don't, don't go back. Don't go back to trying to do it in your own strength. He's given you all the resources that you need. And He is with you to do it. If you're here today and you have not been wed to Christ, you don't belong to Him yet, you have an opportunity. You have an opportunity to place your trust in the one who not only tells you what is good and right, but then would also forgive you for not doing that. And now put His Spirit within you to help you to do it rightly. He is the one who would be the perfect husband to us all. The perfect Lord. If you want to know more about that, please see myself or Pastor Adam or, or Pastor Sean after the service today. We would love to talk more about that, to, to, to explain the gospel and how this, how this works, what God has done on your behalf. We would love to talk with you about that. Let's pray.